just invite you to think about this, the, the song we're singing, this very, very familiar song to many of us. It's an expression of need. It's an acknowledgement of all that we lack uh, and how much we need the Lord. We know without him, the scripture says we can do nothing. But you know, at the same time, I would remind myself, I would remind you as well that none of us truly comes this morning with empty hands to the Lord. We all have something we can offer him. We all have something we can give him. All sorts of things, tangible and intangible. The scripture says, in fact, in Psalm 96, these are the verses that as a team we prayed through this morning as we were getting started a couple hours ago. It says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Now, when we hear the word offering, most of us immediately and maybe exclusively think money. And certainly we have the opportunity to give God our gifts and our offerings. But you've got all kinds of things you can offer him this morning. You can offer him your heart. You can offer him your mind. Many of us simply need to start by saying, Lord, I'm here to offer you my attention. And even in that acknowledgement, but at the same time, Lord, I need your help to block out distraction. And so I just want you to take a minute just to quietly, as the music plays, before I pray, to contemplate, even if you haven't yet, what is it you can bring to the Lord this morning? What do you have to offer him by way of time, talent, treasures? Again, it may just simply be, Lord, today I'm here to give you my attention. Today I'm here to give you worship. Today I'm here to give you my confusion, my broken heart. Just take a moment and allow that, having worshipped well, now to surrender completely. Lord, this morning, here's what I've come to offer you. and Just do that right now. Father, some of us come today with full hearts and some of us come with hearts that are hurting, even empty. Father, some of us come with full hands, overflowing with blessings, tangible earthly blessings, and others of us are really acutely aware of the things that we lack and the things that we need. But Father, the one thing that we can all have in common is that we can bring all of what we do and don't have, however great or small, we can bring it all to you. And Father, we know that you are the God, your word shows us, Jesus is the one who takes meager offerings and turns them into the impossible and the miraculous. Father, you know how to deal gently with a bruised reed. You know how to, how to deal with us and, and use us and prompt us when we're in seasons of abundance and overflowing joy. Father, even in a group this size, every heart is different, every need is unique, but we thank you that our Savior is always the same. And so, Father, we do now, as we have lifted up our voices to you in worship, in song, in coming to communion, we now go to your word, Father, believing that you alone have the words of life and trusting you, Father, to, to speak, Father, through the foolishness of preaching and minister deeply and powerfully to our hearts. Father, not because Pastor Aaron has something important to say, but because the word of the Lord endures forever. And when it goes out and waters the ground, it does not return without accomplishing what you desire. So Father, we cling to your word. We claim your promise as we look to Jesus and we say, Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do by guiding us in truth, by guarding us from error, by delivering us from distraction, and by helping us to see Jesus. 
Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we go to your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we go to your word. And when we go in a little while, when we leave, Father, may it genuinely be rejoicing because we sat at the feet of the one who did in fact love us, the one we put on the cross and yet at the same time went willingly. He loved us enough to lay his life down for us and then take it up again in victory. It is him we, we worship, it is him we praise, it is him we seek, and it is in his name that we pray. As all God's people said together, amen, amen. You may be seated really loud. Boys and girls, we'll go ahead and dismiss you for Children's Church right now. If you've got kiddos from five years old up to second grade, uh, you can head out, out that door, out to get taught God's Word as we're going to look to the Scriptures here ourselves together as well. Again, good morning. Good to see you. And as you take out your Bible and begin making your way, I want you to meet me this morning in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to be in the Scripture this morning. Let me just say, just because it's on my heart, that I wish you all this morning could have been standing in worship right where I was in that spot over there. I know most of you are deathly terrified of the front row. You think bad things happen in the front row, and you would never dream of sitting in the front row. But i got to tell you, I love listening to all you sing today. It was, uh, it was good just to stand and hear the people of God lifting their voices in praise. It's also kind of fun when I peek out of the corner of my eye, I can see so many of your faces and just see how you are seeking the Lord. So, so I actually expect, I expect there to be jostling for position next Sunday. This seat, I suppose that one's almost as good. Probably it's okay over there as well. It's not bad, but it is really, really cool every once in a while. And I know the worship team shares this thought with me a lot that there are times as they're playing, they just stop and listen to the voices of God's people. It's amazing how 200 can sound like 2,000 and and uh, how the joy of the Lord can just really deal with us uh, in those moments. So uh, thank you. Uh, let me just say, I guess what I'm really saying is thank you for leading me in worship, well, team, but also church family. It's good to be together in the house of the Lord and to seek His face. And that really is what, as you know, if you've been here the last three Sundays, uh, what this current sermon series is all about, what it means not just to show up, not just to attend, but what it means to belong to a, to the local church, to yes, have, as we must have, as Marv reminded us this morning, a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Everything starts there. Nothing else matters until that's solved. But then once it is, to get locked in with a group of fellow believers with whom you can, can worship and walk together. So that's what we're talking about. And this morning, as we continue, sort of, it may appear haphazard to you, I, I, I promise there's a structure to it, as we continue sort of hopping from place to place in the New Testament, this morning we're in Acts chapter 4. And whereas uh, we're going to spend a lot of time in some of the, the letters of Paul and, 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 and Peter and others, and we've done some of that already, this morning we're going to look at a story. We're going to pick the story up just so you know when I begin reading midstream, but I promise you, as soon as I'm done reading it, I'm going to take you back and explain what we overlooked. So hopefully it all fits together and, uh, and we, we understand uh, the scene before us. But I'm going to begin for our purposes this morning in Acts chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading in verse 23, and I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. We're here. This is God's servant Luke writing, this is what the Word of God says. It says, when they, they is Peter and John, the apostles Peter and John, when they had been released from jail, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they, that is the gathered church, heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said... 
Why did the Gentiles rage, and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Now, Lord, take note of their threats, and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence, while you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. And the congregation were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him, that belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it. And he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet." You know, whenever I teach on prayer, I teach a Sunday school class as we're doing right now, I teach a small group on prayer, I, I lead a pastor seminar, had the opportunity to do that again uh, just this past week. But whenever I teach a, a group, a new group of people on what I have learned and, and what the scripture teaches about prayer, I always begin by asking those in attendance, and this is a risky move, but I do it anyway, to tell me the first thing that comes to mind, the first word or whatever it is that comes to mind when they hear me say, all church prayer meeting. And I say, what's the first word, the first thought, the first notion that arises in your mind? And invariably, the first answer the first answer I hear is the one most of you just thought of. And you don't want to raise your hand, and you're not brave enough to say it, but it's boring. The first thing I'm always told is prayer meetings are boring. And usually, it only gets worse from there. The adjectives, the descriptions, the, the, the personal experiences and horror stories of of all church prayer meetings. Now, every once in a while, there'll be a brave soul who will sort of sheepishly raise their hand and say, powerful or, or thrilling, but, but they're the exception to the rule. And, and I want you to know the reason I'm telling you this is I've conducted that very non-scientific poll often enough in as many different groups with as many different people that I am now able to safely conclude the following, that the reason most people don't go to prayer meetings is because most people, most believers, have been to prayer meetings, and they know what to expect when they get there, and they don't want it anymore. They've been there, done that, and said, that's enough for me. But could we all agree as we begin this morning that it really shouldn't be that way? That that is not at all what God desired, desires when He calls His people to pray? Because as I read the New Testament, and I bet you've noticed this too as you've read 
the book of Acts and the letters and, and, and everything from, from the Gospels onward. It seems to me that as I read the New Testament, that from the very start of the early church, it was faithful, fervent, expected, expectant, corporate prayer gatherings were the lifeblood of the church. God's people coming together to pray and God moving mightily and powerfully among them. I believe that fervent corporate prayer is the lifeblood of every healthy church. And I think I believe that because that's what the Bible shows us. And the reason I tell you that is because that is what brings us this morning to the third commitment in our church covenant of fellowship. As I've explained the past few Sundays, as we are talking about what it means to belong. As we're talking about belonging to a local church, we're using the structure of our church's covenant of fellowship, which is a a list of 12 statements, 12 agreements. We invite those who want to make this church their home to pursue with us, not perfectly, not legalistically, but seriously and strenuously that these are the things we're going to seek to do together as a church. The first was to walk together in Christian love. Last Sunday, we talked about exercising Christian care and watchfulness over one another. This morning now, we are at commitment number three. You see it on the screen already, so let's go ahead and I'll say it together. It is commitment number three to pray with and for one another, sharing our burdens, sorrows, and joys. To pray with and for one another, sharing our burdens, sorrows, and joys. And so this morning, as we continue this exploration, this look at the vast difference there really is between merely attending and genuinely belonging to this or any other local church, it is, it is this story, of course, we just read in Acts chapter 4, that I believe can help guide us, that we're going to use to guide us in understanding the great importance, the great power of being called to pray as a local church, being called to pray together as a church family. Now, before we get into to the why, before really get into the nuts and bolts of what this is all about, there are a couple of things I want you to see first, just so, as I said a moment ago, you understand the context. We understand what was going on here. So very quickly, there's a couple of things I want you to see about this story, the first of which is this. The first thing I want you to note with me is in verse 23, is that what we're looking at is what I would consider a spontaneous all-church meeting. We are invited into, in verse 23, in the middle of Acts chapter 4, a spontaneous, an impromptu, all-church meeting, and here's why. You see, in the first 22 verses of Acts chapter 4, the part we didn't read, some of you may know the story, but, but the story opens, the chapter opens, with the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and the chief priests, they're all in a tizzy. They're all worked up because Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples, and and certainly the others were doing the same as well, were preaching in the temple each and every day. And as they preach, they're drawing these massive crowds, and people are surrendering their lives to Jesus Christ. They're performing, in fact, what really spurred this is they just performed a spectacular miracle of healing. And, And that sort of thing, the Bible suggests, was happening all the time. And the religious leaders are all worked up because the crowd is 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 no longer following them. The crowd is now running after Jesus and his disciples. And finally, the first 22 verses of Acts 4 show us that they're so frustrated, that they're so committed to stopping what Peter and John are up to that they throw them in jail for the night. Just get them out of the way. They can't influence anybody here. Well, then the Bible goes on to say in this same chapter, the next morning they brought them back out. And they had sort of a, a spontaneous public hearing 
There in the temple, it seems like something where, where a crowd would have again gathered, and, and in that, that hearing where they're, they're sort of reading Peter and John, the riot act, Peter and John, well, they just preach the gospel again. They, they can't be stopped. And that only makes them more angry. And, and in fact, it, it enraged the religious leaders so much that they finally said, here's what we're going to do. This will stop them. We'll tell them not to do it anymore. Don't you preach in this name of Jesus. That'll tell them. That'll teach them. But of course, Peter and John, they have this classic line, we can't stop speaking of what we've seen and heard. Say whatever you want. Utter your threats. And so they double down. No, 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 guys. We really mean it. Knock it off. Don't talk to people about Jesus. And then it seems sort of as if in the last couple of verses of, of the, first, uh, the first half of the chapter that the religious leaders become so frustrated and so overwhelmed, they just finally give up and send him away. And it says in verse 23 again, when they, Peter and John, had been released, they went to their own companions. They went to the Jerusalem church and reported all the chief priests and elders said to them. It's a spontaneous meeting. They all come together. They hear what's going on, what they're being threatened with. And that leads them, prompted them, then to the second thing I want you to see by way of background to the story, that in this spontaneous all-church meeting, they immediately, their response was to offer an exceptional prayer, an exceptional all-church prayer to the Lord. And that's really what's covered in verses 24 through 31. Now, the sermon this morning, just so you know where I'm not going, this is not going to be a sermon on the mechanics of prayer, if you will, on, on how to pray and, 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 and what to pray about. I've taught on that many times before. Uh, I will certainly teach on it again in the future. But we're not going to talk about how to pray. And so as such, we're only going to spend, as much as I want to spend a lot of time in 24 through 31, we're only going to pause here long enough to note the following things. And I want you to see these because they're important. A, Corporate prayer was the church's first move. Corporate prayer was their first move. Let's get together and pray about it. In fact, my favorite line of really probably the whole section is when in verse 24 it says, when they heard this, they muttered to each other how bad things were. They, they got together and complained about how the society was in a handbasket headed the wrong direction and everything's... No. What does it say? They lifted their voices, listen to this, with one accord. Do you like that? Amen. You should. Literally, it means with one shared passion. With one shared passion, they went to the Lord. And I would have you note that in doing so, right from the very start, from the first words out of their mouth, they then fixed their eyes on the Lord, not the problem. That's the second thing I want you to see about their prayer. The prayer was focused on the Lord. It was not focused on the problem. And, and that they did so without any sort of sense of anxiety or despair. Just look at the rest of verse 24. It says, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and they said, O Lord, it's you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. It, right there, they've acknowledged two things. God is sovereign, God's creator. In other words, he's in control. And, and we're going to start by reminding ourselves, establishing that fact. Then in the next several verses of the prayer, they remembered, they rehearsed aloud together how God had gotten his people through much, much worse. Ultimately gotten them, gotten his own son, used the cross, the tragedy of the cross to bring about the, the joy of salvation. 
And then I'd have you note that when they finally in the prayer got around to their request, when they finally began talking to God about, about the need, look at verses 29 and 30. They did not ask what I would have asked for. God, strike our enemies down. Move them out of the way. Get rid of them. Fix them. Save them. Kill them. Do something. It's not what they pray. Look at the verses, 29 and 30. And now, O Lord, take note of their threats. Lord, we trust you to deal with them and their sin. But here's what we want. Grant us. Grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal And do some miracles through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They did not ask God to remove the trial. They asked God to give them strength for the task. Strength for the task. Power to meet the opportunity. And when they did, here's one of my other favorite lines of the story. Verse 31, and when they prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. That would be cool. That's literal, okay? That is not a metaphor. The foundations of the room of the house shook. God, as it were, gave his own amen to their prayer because they were seeking his face together. And through that prayer, here's what I want to do with the rest of our time together. There's a lot of things we could touch on, a lot of things we could dig into, but what I want to show you for our purposes, this, for the purpose, again, of talking about the difference between attending and belonging, truly being part of this or or whatever local church you call home. I believe that in the remainder of this story, through that prayer, there are four messages this scene is sending us. There are four very specific messages this scene is sending us about corporate prayer. Corporate prayer means praying together. And they are as follows, number one. The first message this scene sends us about corporate prayer, as the rest of the passage shows us, is number one, if you want a courageous church, pray together. If you want to be, belong to, be part of, build a courageous church family, the answer, the key, is to pray together. Now, if you think with me for a moment, the first word, Jesus gave us something at the end of his time on earth, after the resurrection, called the Great Commission. And after he said, Guys, all power, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What is the first word of the Great Commission? He said, therefore, 12 of you know it. Therefore, go. Go. Go where? Into all the world, all the nations. The Great Commission, Jesus said, is get up out of your pew, out of your seat, out of your house, and go tell people about me. That, Jesus said, is the strategy of how the church is to take the good news of the gospel of salvation to the whole world. Go. Now, for years, generations, really, our culture was an aberration, was an outlier. Because we lived in, or we at least had, some of us grew up, in a culture where it it was socially acceptable, even socially advantageous to go to church on Sunday morning, to show up. It was considered good business. It was considered good politics. It was considered whatever. People would go to church. That was just expected of people. And and so going and telling really really didn't have to be kind of the name of the game because people are already coming and hearing. You probably don't need me to tell you we don't live in that culture anymore. Do this experiment. Think about the people who live on your street. How many of them get up and go to church on Sunday morning? 
I know it's very, very low in our neighborhood. And we have a neighborhood of very nice people. But they are not coming and hearing. They are not, by and large, simply going to come and see because they're invited or because they wake up on Sunday and think it's a good idea. We don't live in a come-and-see society anymore. We once again live, as most of the rest of the world does and most of the history of the church always had, in a go-and-tell world, in a go-and-tell neighborhood. And, and that's what Jesus said from the beginning. And here's what I know about going and telling. It's scary. It's hard. For whatever reason, we find it very, very difficult to do. Going and telling takes courage. But here's what I can tell you this morning. I can tell you where the courage we need comes from. The courage that we need comes from, according to Acts 4.31, it comes through praying together. Look at your Bible. And when they had prayed together, verse 31, the place where they gathered was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak the Word of God with boldness. Not to each other. It does not take courage to speak the Word of God to fellow believers. Obviously, if you're confronting them, but that's an exception. You need boldness to tell those who don't believe, who don't know, who haven't heard. And who did it say began to speak the word of God with boldness? Peter and John? No. All. The whole place was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And it was through that that they were given the courage they needed to go and tell. Why? Because by meeting together and praying and seeking God, I believe a large part of it is simply visibly, tangibly reminded we belong to something much bigger than ourselves. We belong to, again, sovereign Lord, creator of the universe, the one who's in charge of every appointment and encounter we have in daily life. As Warren Wearsby says, I love this, about this story. He says, the greatest concentration of power in Jerusalem that day was not in the palace, and it was not in the temple. It was in this prayer meeting. And I believe with all my heart the same is true when God's people gather to pray and seek his face together wherever they meet. There's this incredible concentration of power and through power, the power of God comes the courage of the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses. Listen to me. If you want a courageous church, if you want this church to be a courageous church, we've got to pray together. We've got to pray together. Second, second thing this story shows us the second message this scene sends us about this call to corporate prayer is that if you want a unified church, pray together. If you want to belong to a unified church, heed the call to pray together. You know, I know that, uh, that anecdotal evidence, a story, is not always the best way to, to prove a point. But sometimes it is. Sometimes we need scientific information. We need empirical evidence. But sometimes a real-life example, if, if not makes the point, at least cinches it. And, and, and I think that, that in, in, in terms of, of sort of explaining and recognizing the link between corporate prayer and church unity, sometimes a story is the best, is the best way to illustrate it. So, for example, I personally belong to two groups of men, two pastors' prayer groups here in Cedar Rapids. Both have about the same number of guys, five or six guys in each group. And, and we, we bill ourselves, we talk to each other about our pastors' prayer group. Now, now, the first group I've met with every month for 20 years. 
We've met every month for 20 years. We meet for an hour or so. We eat lunch together. We all go around, and I love this group, so don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not going either of these things. One is better than the other. But in this group, we spend an hour sharing prayer requests. What's going on in our life? What's going on in our church? What are our personal needs? And that's very, very important. And we appreciate that time so much. And then at the end, we take about five minutes to pray. 20 years. The other group's met for three years. Now, we meet weekly, so that's more frequent. But all we do is pray together. We come, we open the Bible, we read a passage, and we pray. Now, there's some structure to it. If you were in Sunday school this morning, there is a pattern that we follow in praying together. And here's what I've discovered. If you were to ask me which group are you tighter with, it's not even close. And it's not the one I've met with for 20 years. It's the one I've met with for three. And I attribute it exclusively to the fact that all we do is pray together. We don't talk. We don't talk a lot before. We don't talk a lot after. It doesn't mean we don't like each other. It's just we need to pray. And we'll chit-chat on the way in and the way out. But, but our hearts are like this. And I can promise you, those are the guys who in between the times we meet, I'm praying for all the time. It's not that I don't pray for the other guys, but they're not, I'm not as mindful of them. You say, well, it's just because you meet more. Maybe, but it is also because we pray more. And it has convinced me of what I already suspected. That nothing knits the hearts of believers together more tightly or more transparently than prayer. Because you see, and you know this, even if you've never thought about it, it's easy to wear a mask with people you only pray with occasionally and in passing. Grab them after church and you pray, and I love it when I see that, and you should too. But it's easy to not be transparent in passing. It's, it's easy to keep your guard up in passing. It's very, very difficult to do that when you pray with someone else for an hour or for 20 minutes. Because sooner or later, what's going to happen? You're, 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 whatever's in your heart is going to spill out. Uh, whether it's worship or sorrow or joy or need, these things, I believe it is impossible to keep your guard up. It is impossible to hold people at a distance if you pray together with them often. God just has a way of knitting us together in ways that are very, very difficult to unravel. So with that in mind, look again at verse 32. Because here's what it says. It says, again, when they had prayed, the place was shaken, verse 31, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to speak the word of God with boldness, and I have another favorite line in this passage, here it comes, all right? And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Say one heart and soul with me. One heart and soul. They were united. Why? Because they were praying together. And I'm just going to tell you, more anecdotal evidence. I see the same thing happening among those of us who gather regularly for our monthly fresh encounter. We're becoming more transparent and connected to each other. I see it happening among the, the, the 12 to 15 of us who gather each Wednesday for a little while at noon, our Friday morning prayer group that's met forever. And you may have a prayer circle like that as well, and you know it too. And I'm not saying it's all about being at one or the other, but I say you've got to be praying with people somewhere if you want a unified church. We must be seeking the face and hand of God together. I have found God changed my heart towards people through nothing other than praying with them. I'm not telling you stories. I'm just saying it's true. He brought my guard down, my fears taken away, simply by praying with them. Because God does stuff when we 
pray. And I believe that's one of the best ways he shows us that we really do belong to each other. In fact, here, I'm going to be so bold as to say this. You may disagree. I believe it with all my heart. I believe no church, no church can be as unified as it should be if its people aren't committed to pray together. United? Absolutely. I believe a church, a non-praying church or, or a church that, that treats prayer perfunctorily or just is just getting started, I believe a church like that can be united and accomplish great things. A united church can raise lots of money. A united church can buy a building. A united church can launch a ministry and send missionaries out in the world. And all that's good. I'm not saying it doesn't count. I'm not saying those things don't matter. So don't misunderstand or misinterpret what I am saying. But here's the question we have to ask. Once the hill has been climbed, once the, the mission has been accomplished, the raising the funds, the buying the building, the launching the ministry, the sending the missionary, what holds us together? If it has to be the next adventure, we're united but not unified. If it has to be, we need another hill to climb. We need another target to aim at. We may, if God leads, but if we got to get something in front of the people to hold them together, then we are not unified. United, maybe. Unified, no. Prayer unifies the hearts of God's people. Why? Because if you want a unified church got to pray together. It's where God works. It's another one of the messages this story sends us. Number one, if you want a courageous church, pray together. Number two, if you want a unified church, pray together. Number three, if you want an impactful church, pray together. If you want an impactful church, I believe this story tells us we must pray together. You know, one of history's great social riddles, mysteries, is how a company of 11 essentially untrained, largely uneducated men armed only with the belief that a carpenter rose from the dead, transformed the Roman Empire, spanned the globe, and is still making converts today. That is a mystery, right? Because we know these guys' story. We know they weren't all that. And yet, what did they do? What did they launch? What did they get started? And what is it still? In other words, what I'm, what I'm asking us to consider is what was the secret behind the fact, verse 33, that it was with great power that the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. What was the secret and can that secret be ours as well? Now, you know where I'm going with this. I'm going to say prayer, all right? But I have, in this case, empirical evidence for it, not just anecdotal. I want you to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 11. Real quickly, meet me in Luke chapter 11. Because I think the source of the disciples' power, of the impact they made on the world that we are the beneficiaries of, maybe not exclusively, but I believe largely, can be traced to what happened in Luke chapter 11. This is midpoint beyond of Jesus' three-year earthly ministry. And most of you know the story. Many of you, I'll say, probably know the story well. And if you don't, here it is. It happened, Luke 11.1, 1, that while Jesus was what? Praying in a certain place. After he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Why do you think he made that request? You ever asked that question? Why do you think he said, Lord, teach us to pray? Because it looked like so much fun. 
Because it looked super productive. Look at all that Jesus is doing there on his knees. Or did he, did he ask that question? Because he and perhaps the other disciples were beginning to connect the dots between Jesus' unshakable commitment to prayer and the unprecedented impact of his ministry. It's like Jesus prays and just miracles happen. <laughs> Jesus prays and lives are changed. Jesus prays and, and food shows up. And, and they're connecting the dots between prayer and impact. I think that's probably what was driving their curiosity. Because they said, Lord, teach us to pray. The way John and his disciples prayed and, and the way we see you praying as well. And you know what I believe the most obvious yet overlooked fact about Jesus' answer is in what we now know as the Lord's Prayer? I believe the most obvious and overlooked and important part of Jesus' answer is he taught them to pray together. What is the first word of the prayer? Our. Not my Father. Our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day, our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What is Jesus assuming? He's assuming his people pray together. He's assuming they pray together. Now listen, do not misunderstand me. I, I am not saying personal prayer isn't important. It is. Personal prayer ought to be a part of your life as a follower of Jesus. It's a good thing to do. But the pattern found in Acts and through the rest of the New Testament is that the church, the church's greatest seasons of impact came through corporate prayer. Look at the history of the church since then, as I've begun to do, and I don't claim to be an expert, but I've seen enough to know that every great revival that has occurred in the last 2,000 years was birthed in corporate prayer. Not one person praying for revival, God's people praying for revival, praying that God would do something extraordinary. Never forget, the church was born in a prayer meeting, not in a preaching service, not in a hymn sing, not at a potluck, in a prayer meeting in the upper room. And I think the lesson of the upper room in Acts chapter 2 had stuck with these guys as they came to Acts chapter 4. Because again, if you look, it says in, I'm still in Luke, let's go back to Acts chapter 4. It says in verse 31, when they had prayed, the place was shaken, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you come down to verse 33. And again, what do you see? That with great power, great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And again, as you read the book of Acts, what do you find? What does it mean, great power? What was the result? Well, on one occasion, 3,000 people were saved on a single day. Right around this time, if you look, a couple thousand more came to know Jesus on a single day. They, just as I told you, performed this incredible miracle, and other miracles followed throughout the book of Acts. Not exclusively, but at the same time, primarily because they were praying together. And that's why I, I really believe, again, one of, the, one of the best ways to move from attending to belonging, one of the ways to, to, to move from simply being inspired on Sunday to having impact in the world is by not just singing and sitting and listening, but by meeting and seeking God's face 
together, heeding the call to corporate prayer. So if you want a courageous church, pray together. If you want a unified church, pray together. If you want an impactful church, pray together. Fourth and finally, if you want a generous church, pray together. If you want a generous church, pray together. Very, very quickly, the last few verses of the chapter once again. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as any had need. And then they give a specific example. Joseph, also known as Barnabas, because his, he was a son of encouragement. He did this very thing. He was one of them who did it. He owned a tract of land, sold it, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, we should never misinterpret what we see in these verses as, as being, being an illustration of some sort of utopian commune, right? Where nobody owned anything. There's just a big pile of stuff in the middle of the compound. And you go take what you need, and, and I'll take what I need. And, 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 and it's not like that at all. Instead, the idea of what we see here, as, as one, one scholar puts it, they say that though the Christians in the early church, had personal possessions. And they did. You'll see examples. They had houses and treasures and stuff. Many of them. Others didn't. Though the Christians had personal possessions, they did not consider them private possessions. That is, if one had a need, another would seek to meet it. If one lacked something, the others would come alongside and provide it happily. Can I submit to you that however you slice it, that's not normal? Listen, I understand there's generosity and charity in the world, but as a way of life, as a regular, familiar, maybe even expected way of life, that whenever there are needs, the others rise up and come alongside and meet it, and they say, what's mine can be yours. I am happy to share it with you. But that's how it can be when we commit to praying together being a house of prayer. Because just think about it in very practical terms. When a church family prays together, it is inevitable, and I said, I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but it's inevitable. When a group of believers prays together, sooner or later, you're going to find out about the needs in somebody else's life. Physical need, financial need, relational need, emotional need. Because again, you're just going to hear their true heart come out. And what happens when we pray together is not only do we begin to become aware of others' needs simply because we're conversing with God in the same room, but we begin, because the Holy Spirit's present, begin to become sensitive to ways that God might use me to meet it, to help, to strategize, to step up. Now, if I wasn't praying with them, A, I wouldn't know about their need, and B, I'd never even think of asking the Holy Spirit to show me what I might be able to do. But because I'm praying with them, both of those things can happen. And I've seen it, and, and, and you probably have too. When we gather to pray in those ways, we find we become aware of needs, we become sensitive to needs, and we watch as prayers become providers. Prayers become providers for one another. Now, if you've ever been on the receiving end of a fellow believers of a church's generosity, you know that it is one thing above all else, and that is humbling. Sometimes it's hard to be the recipient of someone else's time, talent, or treasures. They have something you don't have, and so they give it. They can do something you can't do, and so they share it. It's very, very humbling to be on the receiving end of other believers' generosity. But isn't it also equally true, if not more, that there are a few things that assure you you belong to the family, that when the family steps up and takes care of you, that's when you've moved from attending belonging. 
If we want a generous church, we need to pray together. Listen, I understand. I understand that most prayer gatherings are not the spiritual equivalent of a trip to Disneyland, okay? I, I get that they don't always look like fireworks and Ferris wheels and... I mean, I've been to some painful prayer meetings, and I've led plenty of painful prayer meetings. And believe me, when they're painful, nobody knows it more than me. Nobody rehearses it more than me. I know we don't always get it right. I'm also more convinced than ever of what my prayer mentor, Daniel Henderson, says all the time, all the time that, that becoming a house of prayer, developing a prayer culture, is a whole lot more crockpot than it is microwave. It just takes time. It doesn't happen quickly. But I also believe it's impossible to look at this story and others like it in the Bible and argue with what Jesus Christ did through churches that prayed together. They got on their knees, they got on their faces, they got with each other and sought his face and his hand who heeded the call to pray. And that's why I really believe the big idea of this morning's message is that nothing, nothing unites or nothing ignites a church like the commitment to pray together. Nothing unites a church like praying together. Nothing ignites a church like praying together. We can do a lot of stuff and be a prayerless church, but we can't be the church God wants us to be if we aren't praying together. Father, prayer, the gift of prayer is, is an extraordinary gift. And in some ways, Father, we're so familiar with it, and some of us maybe even have had some, some, some challenging experiences with corporate prayer that, that, that we don't see it as the gift that it is. And we've forgotten, Father, I know so many times I have, that prayer is not simply a means to get what I want from you, to, to get thy will done in heaven as I've already decided it ought to be down here on earth, but it is... The means, Lord, as, as, as a couple of people, even in our Sunday school class this morning, said of just spending time with a Father who loves me, who loves us. Father, in the same way those of us who are parents who delight in seeing our children getting along, playing together, laughing together, grieving together. Father, how much more must you be delighted when your people make it a priority to do the same with you? Father, we realize that just because we have a stone out front that says house of prayer, that doesn't make us one. But it reminds us that we should be and it challenges us that we can be. And Father, I pray that, that more and more, day by day, year by year, we'll be able to say that we are becoming a genuine house of prayer where we praise you, where we seek you, where we trust you. Father, where we call on the name of the Lord of God with one accord. And Father, we rejoice in the privilege to do so. Father, as always, take the things of truth that have been spoken here today, seal them in our hearts, and let all the rest be forgotten so that we leave looking to Jesus alone in whose name we pray.